This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about self-determination uh, and specifically over our short time together, I'll provide you with a high-level overview of California's self-determination program, which is a way for Californians with intellectual and developmental disabilities to access and utilize the regional center funds for supports and services in a different way. Uh, I'll also share some updates on the program implementation, some trends that we're seeing across the state, both you know, exciting opportunities as well as some persistent challenges that we're all continuing to work through together. And lastly, and this is the part I'm most happy about, you'll be hearing directly from some Californians who are in the self-determination program right now and wanted to share their experience and their perspectives with you today. So excited about that. And uh, ooh, I should stop and do a quick visual description. I'm a, uh, a white woman. I have brown curly hair, a big smile usually, <laughs> and I'm wearing a white shirt, uh, a gray jacket, and I'm coming to you from my home office in the East Bay of California today. Nothing to disclose. All right, so you know, before we dive into the details here, I always like to pan out a little bit and talk about the big picture of where I'm coming from. Um, and, and that's, you know, as a staff member of the State Council on Developmental Disabilities. And for those of you that are less familiar with us, uh, the State Council on Developmental Disabilities is established by both state and federal law as an independent state agency. And we ensure that Californians with developmental disabilities and their families are guaranteed the, the same full and equal opportunities you know, for life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness as all Americans here. And we work on this through advocacy and capacity building and systemic change. And for those of us that are joining uh, from outside of California, there is a state council in every state in U.S. territory. I'd be happy to connect you with yours. So uh, keep that in mind and would love to chat with you and make sure that you're connected to your state council wherever you are in the nation. So here in California, our work is in partnership with so many folks that you've heard today, so many more that you'll hear and many of you that are attending. Uh, and that includes Californians with intellectual and developmental disabilities, their families, the professionals that serve them, um, so that they can receive the services and supports that they need, right? With the goal of all people deserve to thrive and actively participate in their communities. And while uh, we, the State Council, we have a, a diverse set of state plan goals for California involving equity and access to education, employment, housing, public safety, um, so many others. This statement you see here, it captures our, our focus for health and healthcare equity. And that's, and I'm sure many of you, this is, this is kind of a, a, a part of your work as well. Every person must have access to comprehensive and timely and quality and affordable healthcare. That's got to include dental care and wellness services, access to plain language, information and supports to make informed decisions about their healthcare. Right. I think that speaks for a, a lot of our beliefs. And this requires informed consent and individualized, appropriate medication treatments and an adequate support of health professionals. Right. In, in the full scope. We know that that is not an easy thing. We know that that requires collaboration, uh, including learning from and networking and engaging 
in continuing education with other professionals like we are today, advocates, leaders in disability communities, including those that are working in advocacy and in disability justice. So kudos uh, to those of you today that are, are bringing us here and moving us forward. And so, uh, you know, our state council regional offices all over the state, we hear pretty much every week from individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities and other disabilities and from their families uh, about the challenges that they face navigating not one, but multiple systems of care, right? No surprise. And, and we've talked about this and many of you talk about this. We talk about this together, navigating Medi-Cal, navigating Medicare, navigating private insurance, advocating for access and functional needs to be met so that people can even be seen and seen by the appropriate folks. Uh, navigating the complexities of the regional center system, of mental and behavioral health care systems, county departments, nonprofits that are, that are vendored through county departments or through state departments, coordinating with social service providers, um, and even the basics like transportation, how people can actually get to where they need to go, whether that's for treatment or for services. Um, and then all the barriers, including the digital divide, that, that how that's impacted health and health access, healthcare access. So we're talking multiple systems, multiple criteria for access, for billing systems, restrictions and delays, uh, and many times barriers to care coordination, right? Uh, and that's especially hard for patients with complex conditions or co-occurring conditions. So, you know, where does self-determination come into this, right? So, so here's where we want to get going. But before we talk about the self-determination program here in California, let's talk about self-determination as a concept, okay? So it's a concept and a and it's a way of receiving services and supports that's certainly not new. It's it's not new in the United States. Um, it's not new in California. And really it speaks to international movements and the right of people to decide their own destiny, right? And its most basic component. Self-determination as a, as a general principle, it's represented in a, a number of international treaties. It's represented in the United Nations Charter, in um, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights as a right of all peoples, right? So we think all peoples in access. And speaking of civil rights law, so California passed the Lanterman Act, as many of us know, well over 50 years ago. And the Lanterman Act is where California spelled out some of those ideals and principles of self-determination. So this is not new whatsoever. <clears throat> and in the late 1990s, California created the pilot projects for self-determination. And that was, you know, without going into too many details, but it's an exciting background and story. And it's because of the strong advocacy across the state and directly from many self-advocates and family advocates and policymakers all working together to get self-determination off the ground in the form of that pilot project. And we all learned so much from that pilot project. Uh, most of all, we learned that self-determination is a dynamic and, a, and an adaptive way that people can access supports and services that are right for them, that are individualized. And seeing the success, that led to tremendous grassroots and systemic efforts to get self-determination as a program uh, in legislation that was subsequently passed in 2013 here in California with a phase in starting a handful of years later after we got the, the federal approval for our plan. 
and the full scale rollout of the program starting just last summer of 2021. OK, so this is both longstanding, but also a lot of recent activity. So self-determination here in California, it's it's so important and critical for Californians with IDD and their families and their advocates and allies, in part because we know traditional services simply can't meet the needs of all individuals in an equitable way, right? We're here about equity today. So while there's a lot of work that's being done each year on a community level and on a state level, and you've heard a little bit about that today from, um, from DDS and from many other presenters, so there's lots of work that's happening to develop innovative and impactful community-based services to meet the needs of community members. Um, but you heard also in the words of this morning's keynote speaker, there is still a lot of work to be done, right? So what do we know? We know that some Californians with IDD are underserved uh, due to a variety of reasons, including geographic, language, cultural factors, you already heard today about disparity across multiple systems. And we know that existing uh, regional center vendored services, so the existing community services through the system, uh, they don't always meet the needs, it, particularly people's unique needs or quickly changing needs. And we know that many folks want more control over their lives and more control over their services and supports, right? And that became even more apparent during uh, what we saw with services during the pandemic. So kind of side note here, I was just connecting uh, earlier with our state council self-determination program manager, Joe Hernandez is his name, shout out to Joe, wherever he is in the state. Um, we, were re we were reflecting on the, the number of states in the nation that now have some sort of self-directed service system option for people with developmental disabilities. And Joe is saying that we're at about 42 states now in the nation, 42 states that have some sort of self-determination or self-directed service system is a way to get disability services. So, you know, obviously the, the vision is that all states and U.S. territories would have this as an option for people with developmental and other disabilities. And, and by the way, if you're interested in this and want to get more involved in your state, if you're outside of California, just reach out and I'd be happy to connect you with the right contacts in your area. Okay. So let's get into a few key facts here. So um, self-determination is an alternative way to secure services an alternative to what we call traditional service provision for those that are eligible for regional center services. It's for folks ages three years, three years old and older. It's a voluntary program and it can move with you if you move elsewhere in the state. And it's for regional center enrolled folks who live in the community. And so that means that if somebody lives in a a long-term uh, licensed healthcare facility or a developmental center, um, they can start the process of transitioning to self-determination, but only if they plan to move to a community setting within 90 days, okay? So that still encompasses a huge amount of folks. And then oftentimes we talk about principles of self-determination. We talk about this a lot when folks are interested in the program or when they go through an orientation. In short, you know, we emphasize the freedom to exercise those rights that people have and to establish freely chosen supports um, where somebody lives, choosing who they live with, how they spend their time in their days, their weeks, their weekends, their evenings, the authority to control a budget, to use public funds for services and supports, uh, the support, support is another uh, principle, including the ability to arrange the resources and personnel that the person needs of their choice in their community. 
another principal's responsibility, uh, particularly the responsibility that comes with using public dollars, uh, making decisions, and that includes the hiring and the firing of, of um, service providers and individuals that you might hire or contract with. And then the last principle we talk about is confirmation of the critical role that the person at the center of all this, the, the participant in the program and their family have in making decisions about their own life and designing and operating services that help them live out their dreams, their short and long-term goals. And, and those things and those principles, I mean, that's really in line with the way that Lanerman Act intended, right? Intended the system to operate. So a more complete breakdown of this program and the steps and components are gonna take a lot longer than what we have today. So I just wanna highlight a few key components with you over the next few minutes that I think are most relevant specifically to healthcare providers or for policy folks. So you can see on, on the left traditional service components and on the right self-determination components. And you can see that there's several that are the same, right? So there's some things that really aren't that much different from traditional service provision and regional center funded services to self-determination. So uh, there are some new components though I wanna highlight and you see that in, in red on the screen and that includes non-vendored providers as an option in addition to traditional or vendored providers that are currently available. A person is gonna be more involved with their individual budget and with their individual spending plan than in traditional services, which is really exciting. And of course, both that budget and that spending plan that's based on the person-centered planning work and their individualized program plan, okay? That they're working with their regional center and their circle of support on. A new position that has a big responsibility, a big role in this program across the state is the financial management services, okay? so. That's a role that works with the participant to pay the bills, uh, to verify that the services or supports or the individual folks that are being hired are qualified to do what needs to be done for that individual um, to make sure that moves slowly, do background checks for those in need, that kind of thing. And it is the only, the financial management services is the only required service that has to be used for someone in self-determination and has to be vendorized, okay? So Department of Developmental Services has a list of all the vendorized financial management services across the state. And then this last, uh, what, second to last on the, bullet here, on the bullets here is the independent facilitator. Now that is an optional role that some people are choosing. And it's again, a really exciting one. So the services of an independent facilitator uh, include supporting the participant or assisting them in, um, in making decisions about their budget, about who they're recruiting or who they're finding or what they're finding to satisfy the needs that are identified in their individualized program plan, uh, identifying what the gaps are there uh, to meet their goals and their needs. So very, very important role there. And so an important part of self-determination is that similar to the, the traditional model of service provision, participants have to attempt to access generic resources to pay for related services and supports. They have to do that first before using self-determination funds. Um, that's you know, very clearly stated in the Lanterman Act, uh, regional centers are the payer of last resort. So that's something that you see both in traditional service provision as well as in self-determination. 
And so, you know, some of what the Lanham and Access is regional centers are, are mandated to exhaust all of their possible sources of funding and needed services and to help the people they're working with look into that, including generic services, private medical insurance. You can see here the examples include uh, in-home supportive services, school district services, Medi-Cal or Medicaid services, Medicare, private insurance, those kinds of things. So those are all considered generic services from the standpoint of if somebody qualifies to get what they need funded from these other systems, these generic resources, then that needs to happen before accessing um, somebody's self-determination funds to fund those things. So same as with traditional services, same applies for self-determination. Okay, and you heard a little bit about this earlier when Golden Gate Regional Center talked about home and community based um, settings as well. And we'll talk a little bit about that. So, you know, we know that somebody needs to first see another generic, see if any generic system would be paying for what the person needs. And then after that, that next step is to ensure that the services and supports that a person wants to pay for or the equipment that they want to purchase that that follows the federally set guidelines of what's allowable. Here's where Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the home and community-based services, HCBS final rule, that's where that comes into play. And you just learned a lot about that earlier this morning. Uh, and as you recall, so the federal home and community-based services final rule requires that folks who receive services be provided full access to the benefits of community living and that services be offered in settings that are integrated in the community. That doesn't mean it's forcing people into certain types of segregated or um, integrated environments. It's not forcing people to be in full inclusive settings, <clears throat> but it's saying that we need to make sure that services are offered as such, okay? So you heard a lot of, of great content about home and community-based settings and the federal guidelines and the final rule and how that impacts state services. You heard that this morning from uh, Amanda and Mackenzie. Okay, so at a glance, you know, a participant and their team, that includes their circle of support and, and the regional center and their financial management services. By the way, their financial management services has a big role in this part. They're ensuring the services and supports on a person's spending plan that they're evaluated to be HCBS compliant. Um, if there's a service or a treatment that requires a professional with a certain credential or a certain license, um, including you know, certain therapeutic services, we wanna make sure that that person or that, that agency has those credentials or the licenses, and that the services and the supports meet the person's health and safety needs, right? And uh, again, if there's a background checks that are needed, particularly for folks that are providing direct personal care for a participant in self-determination, we wanna make sure that that happens. And uh, the financial management services that service has a large role to play in those checks. All right, so those are some of the basics about the program, okay? Now I wanna talk about kind of where we are now in implementation. Um, so let's start by acknowledging the phenomenal work in the leadership of the local advisory committees. So self-determination local advisory committees. Shout out to the SDACs. And the statewide self-determination advisory committee. So that's a statewide committee um, that the state council supports and is made up of the chairs or co-chairs or designated uh, members of all of the 21 local advisory committees. So 
you know, that also includes the advocates and communities of practice, the folks that come together uh, to partner with and to support the work of both those local committees and the statewide committee. It's huge. Uh, they're continuing to hold public meetings and to offer outreach and education and recommendations for a more successful self-determination rollout in their region of California. Um, the, the statewide advisory committee continues to hold public meetings. Um, they put out a, an interim report. Um, the state council worked to put out an interim report back in 2021, and the statewide self-determination advisory committee put out a, a barriers report, um, many of which those barriers were continuing to work on today. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. These are really helpful. If you're interested, I have links at the end of this deck um, and can send you any of these reports also, but they talk about uh, some of the some of the current strengths and successes and also the barriers that we're working on collaboratively together. More on implementation. So, you know, post, you know, when we got the, the federal approval of California's plan for self-determination, that led to three years of phase-in, okay? So after the three years of phase-in um, and the phase-in years where that's where enrollment into the program was quite limited. So after that wrapped up, summer 2021 was the full rollout, okay? So that rollout kicked off last summer. And that means that anybody eligible can let their regional center know that they're interested, go through an orientation and start their transition into self-determination. Now, the key word here is transition, okay? Because this is not a light switch type of a thing. The transition is a multiple step process and it varies both on the complexity of somebody's service portfolio, what they need, do they already have an updated person-centered plan or do they need to start from scratch and kind of go through that process and revise an IPP? Um, do they have a good circle of support already or do they need to add people or remove people from that circle of support so that it's relevant and current to their needs? So all of that comes into play of how long it takes. But then also it's the, the work and the back and forth collaboration between the participant and the regional center to move through all of the steps. So the budget process, the spending plan creation, and then the securing of the financial management services and which financial management services plan is gonna be right for that person. There's three different varieties and then there's many different vendors. So, and then of course, it's the actual securing of the services, right? So multiple step process there. Uh, as an example of, of uptake and the, what we would consider slow and steady progress, but progress that definitely has been frustrating for a lot of Californians. So uh, in December of 2019, Department of Developmental Services reported that there were just a little over 110 Californians that were enrolled in the program. And by December 2021, they reported around a thousand, right? So we're seeing that increase and it's, and it's more today. We're seeing growth month over month. Um, and we hope to see the transition time, which can be months. And in some cases there's been stops and starts for an individual. So maybe they started the process even a year or so ago, but they're not quite fully in now. And for other people, they're moving right along and in a matter of weeks they're in, right? So it's so individualized and specific for the individual. But overall, we're hoping to see those transition times, um, depending on those specifics, become more streamlined, a little bit more smooth over time, uh, that some of the common bottlenecks are gonna be removed, 
right? So, so we'll touch on that soon and we'll talk about some of the strengths and the challenges at this moment of implementation. So, you know, also budget has had a lot to do with this too. So this last, this last year's state budget brought forward some self-determination specific funding to support the rollout. Um, a couple of things I wanted to highlight, a couple of roles specifically that I'm excited about and a lot of folks are excited about. This last year, the Office of the Self-Determination Program Ombudsperson launched, and that office provides information to uh, regional center participants and to their families. That office facilitates um, solutions to disagreements, investigates complaints regarding the implementation of the program, and recommends strategies for change. And then also in the, the, the 2021 Budget Act included about seven million specifically to fund some limited term participant choice specialists for each of the 21 regional centers in the state. And those are positions that would be um, intended to be subject matter experts and regional center service options, all focused on increasing participant choice and control in both self-determination, but also generally participant directed services. And so those would be staff that would be fully dedicated to supporting regional center service coordinators, as well as participants and families, including with the timely transitions to self-determination. They'd also be working um, within regional centers to, to build that institutional knowledge regarding participant-directed services, including self-determination, but not exclusive to. All right. So a couple of strengths that we wanna highlight, these are just big overarching trends for strengths um, before we hear directly from people served. Um, you can see, you know, we've already talked a little bit about the, the local advisory committees and just the power that those committees, that these are volunteer leaders in the community that have stepped up in some cases for years, dedicating dozens and dozens of hours every month on this project, working in partnership with regional centers, monitoring the development and the progress of self-determination in their region, holding public meetings, outreach events, trainings, making recommendations, hearing back from the community what's not working, <laughs> hopefully also hearing what is working. And they've also had the ability to allocate some special DDS funding for a more successful rollout, decide what's needed in that particular area to help make rollout more successful. Also shout out to the, you know, the grassroots advocacy networks and independent facilitator communities of practice. We're seeing these up and down the state. Some are very hyper-local, some are statewide. It's pretty exciting, you know, because these are some of the same advocates that brought us the pilot back in the 1990s and paved the way for it to be signed into law in 2013, helped get through federal approval. And these are still the folks that are, that are working with others, bringing new people in, both to, to make the phase in years happen and are pushing it forward now that we have the full rollout. And um, just wanna highlight that the, the importance of having components of any program like this, where there are formal and informal ways for people to both speak truth to power, call out and call in to make sure we have the right people working on both the challenges and highlighting successes and momentum building across the state. For challenges, I mean, you know, a lot of the, the challenges that we're seeing in the growth is related to a lot of the same types of systems capacity issues and resource allocation restrictions that we see in so many systems, right? In a variety of healthcare systems and a variety of systems, state systems, including uh, regional center services as well. 
So no surprise there. We also need to see if we're going to expand growth so that people that want to be in the program can, can more quickly get in the program. We want to see more financial management services agencies. We want to see more trained independent facilitators. And we want to support the existing trained independent facilitators so that folks have you know, that collective experience, that knowledge and the ability to support more people. We want to make sure that regional center service coordinators and service providers in the community get the, the training and support that they need ongoing, because this is not easy. This is not a straightforward or simple process. And folks are working really hard to be able to, um, to understand and to teach others about it and to work on it with their cases. And we especially want to make sure that professionals in the field are able to be responsive and, and to do the troubleshooting work that is that is inherent in an individualized person-centered program of any kind. And we need to be able to meet the linguistic and cultural needs of Californians that might benefit from this program, you know, for outreach, for enrollment, for providing services and so on. And, uh, you know, I'll move forward, but again, there's a terrific bearers report and there's also a, um, uh, an interim report that are available um, through the state council website where you can read more about the trending and, and some of the work that's being done by a variety of partners, both public sector, private sector, grassroots, um, working together to make this happen. And then just wanted to, to highlight, you know, a lot of the, um, the infrastructure and technology systems that are present both in state disability services, also the private sector too, you know, making sure that these systems and the systems that regional centers have access to and DDS uses, making sure that they have the scale and can meet the complexity of, of the needs across the state. Um, so, you know, we're talking for, for service purchasing and case coordination, um, communications, accounting system, all of those types of things. This, this last budget year saw several initiatives that will begin to address this. We're, we're seeing a variety of things that are starting um, and we won't go into details for this today. We don't have time, but you know, a lot of people are working on this. Um, certainly in the meantime, you have regional centers doing what they can to streamline their processes and address bottlenecks in conjunction with their local committees uh, to make it work. And additionally, we can't say enough about the impact of the pandemic and what the pandemic is, has done for individuals and for families these last couple of years. We've, we've heard from hundreds of families directly that they've had to place their self-determination plans on hold or have had to stop mid-transition due to the complexity or the disruption of their lives, their households. Um, and obviously, when households are struggling to access services, maintain household income, keep their homes, you know, fight for education or educational supports, keep the utilities on, um, including caring for sick or dying loved ones, those, are, those, those have all impacted Californians and folks across the nation and their ability to advance their plans for self-determined services and supports. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done to address the disproportionate impact that the pandemic has had on people with disabilities and their families. So we're fast forwarding. There's some resources here that we have for you. I have many more. Feel free to email me so that we can go through that. I want to get to some questions. I want to first call out program directives. There's a variety of really terrific resources for people on the program FAQ page and the program directives page of the Department of Developmental Services, in addition to those resources that I mentioned earlier, available from the state council and from the local committees. 
but let's go ahead. I want to spend at least a very short amount of time to be able to hear directly from Californians that have generously offered to share their experiences and their feedback on self-determination, specifically as it relates to their own healthcare goals and their healthcare needs. Okay. So I uh, want to share with you, and it's and it's worth the time we're taking. Um, Hannah, Megan, Charles, and Neil. These are four individuals that have offered to share their feedback and their experience with you today. And each of these Californians live in a different place of the state, okay? And they work with different regional centers, they work with different service providers, different community members. And each of these professionals today are wearing a multitude of hats. So self-advocates, as family members, as community leaders, as business owners, as advocates for themselves and others, and they are self-determination participants. So first a quote from Neil, and by the way, that, that was Neil on the right-hand side with his wife uh, in the Bay Area on a, on a wonderful hike there. And so Neil shared and wanted to share with you all, my wife's and my self-determination program spending plan are all for personal assistance services. It's, it is a lifesaver for people with developmental disabilities that need personal assistance. The SDP model provides much more independence than the traditional model. We have much more freedom to manage our attendance and budget. We raise our attendance wages and added 20 hours a week of assistance for me. With the co-employer model, with our financial management services, we have supervisory responsibility without being burdened with preparing payroll, filing taxes, obtaining liability insurance and workers' comp. The most important, I'm sorry, the most significant SDP drawback is its complexity. Most SDP candidates and their families probably don't know what questions to ask. My experience as a senior manager at Wells Fargo enabled me to work my way through the complex labyrinth of SDP imposes. So and what Neil uh, shared here gels with the experience of, of many, both in traditional service provision as well as self-determination. Uh, let's hear a little bit from Charles. Charles's perspective. He's a well-known leader in the community. He lives in the northern part of the state. He wanted me to share this video with you from a conversation that he and I had uh, over Zoom earlier this month. Hi, Charles. Thanks for being here with us today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Charles Nutt. I'm the chair of the Self-Determination Advisor Committee with the Bar Northern Regional Center. I'm also the chair for the North State Regional Advisor Committee for the State Council. I'm also part of the Self- SAFE program, which is project, which is uh, self-advocates for emergency education. I, I've um, also, I'm part of SAN, which is a statewide self-advocacy network. Okay, thank you. And thank you for your leadership for California. Charles, can you talk a little bit about, you've been in self-determination. You've been in that program for a while? Yes, I, this is my second year. I, during my first year, I, I, I weighed 400 pounds and I wanted to lose weight. So I got down to 260 pounds. Through, through self determination, I was able to get an exercise bike, a treadmill, and, and a both legs. Wow. And those were parts of your IPP? You were able to put them in yes. your IPP and then put them in for, your for health and plan? wellness. For health and wellness. Great. And how's that working out for you? Well, with the COVID, COVID and everything, I couldn't get a gym membership. So, because everything's closed, was closed down because of COVID. So I, I asked for a treadmill and an you know, exercise bike. 
mm -hmm. and Bowflex, and I was able to get that through on the self-determination program. And it sounds like you've been able to meet some of your health goals. Sounds like there's been a big difference since you've been able to start using those. Yes, I've been working out every day. Congrats. Is there any message that you want to share with people that are considering starting self-determination and have health care goals? Self-determination is a great program, great project. I feel that everybody should should be able to get a treadmill and bicycle and stuff and, or or a computer if they if they have a business and they want to do a health goals. And I feel it's very important. Great. Thank you, sir. Thanks for joining us today. And thanks for your messages about self-determination. You're welcome. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. And then lastly, I just wanted to share just a couple of minutes from Hannah and Megan. Uh, Hannah and Megan shared interest in wanting to share Hannah's experience with self-determination. They're in the Central Valley. And so through a series of emails, we were introduced to one another. And our first time connecting was just this last week. Um, so here's their message. Hi, I'm Hannah. I live in Manteca, California. She was part of the original pilot for the self-determination program. She kicked off in November of 2020. She's had really good success and she was uh, living her life the way she wanted it to be. She had taken courses, business courses, started a small business, Hannah's Vision, and it's tie-dye. She also earned a micro grant from the organization that provided the business courses. So she had $500 to invest in her business. She, um, in August of 2021, she had a medical emergency and had sudden cardiac death. She was revived and she spent some time in the hospital. And I immediately called VMRC and talked to Tanya Candelaria and let her know what was happening, asked her for her support because I was being told by the hospital that they would only have some home health nurse that would stop in two or three days a week for about an hour to take vitals. And also they would send a home health aide once or twice a week to give her a bath. But other than that, it was up to the family and our current caregivers that were personal assistant sighted guides. So um, we needed to be able to have extra support beyond what the health, health insurance would cover. So Tanya, she got right on top of it and got approval so that we could have home health aides. Hannah was not walking. She was not moving. She was not rolling over. So we needed a second set of hands to be able to support us and make sure that Hannah was um, moved uh, safely and received the care that she needed and that our employees were also able to safely handle this. Um, and those individuals that came in from home health were, were skilled and had the information that we needed to help us with the feeding tube that Hannah had. Hannah's done a miraculous recovery. And despite the fact that the doctor who um, saw her before she was going to have, they were making a decision about the defibrillator, that doctor said that they were just going to give her a vest to go home because she wasn't progressing neurologically and she was only going to, she was just going to live in a home and they were referring to a care home. And I said, no, she is going to go to her own home. We have support and we are getting other support in addition to that so that we can have her at home where she is comfortable and 
and feel safe. And as soon as she came home, she blossomed. I mean, the moment she came in on the gurney, somebody said something and she started laughing. <laughs> she was not laughing at the hospital. And if she had gone to a rehab center, I, I know she would not have progressed because she just um, really hates being away from her own home. Yep. And if it wasn't for self-determination, I don't know how we could have done it because we didn't even have um, full coverage of our employees at that point. We had uh, a couple of shifts that weren't covered and we um, just couldn't have done it without two sets of hands and um, the love and care of her um, employees that she has. So powerful experiences there. Um, and we continue to hear from so many community members in the state about their successes, the challenges that they faced, uh, and where we need to go next as a community and as a state. So thanks again uh, for this opportunity. Thank you all for your commitment and sending a, a big appreciation and deep gratitude uh, for the generosity of these Californians that you just heard from uh, and the thousands of others that have been working tirelessly on the vision for self-determination. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.